Luke chapter 16, from verse 16 down to 18. But for context's sake, let me just read for us beginning in verse 14. This is what God's word says. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him, that is Jesus. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. And since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Amen. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, we ask now that by your spirit, you would incline our heart to your testimonies. O Lord, open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of your law and that we might behold it as we behold the face of our Savior, Jesus Christ, for whose glory and in his name we pray. Amen. If you were here last week, you remember how Jesus began by telling a parable at the beginning of chapter 16 regarding money and stewardship and called his disciples to think shrewdly and eternally with what has been entrusted to them, knowing that everything we have actually belongs to God. And we left off with Jesus calling out the Pharisees who, by contrast, loved and served the God of money. And this morning we continue in his discourse and come to verse 16, where all of a sudden he's talking about the law and the prophets, something about people forcing their way into God's kingdom. And then this statement seemingly out of nowhere regarding the issue of divorce. Now, all this might honestly seem a bit disjointed at first. So what's going on here? What, why is Jesus talking about these things? Well, what he's doing here is continuing his train of thought and taking it a step further in picking apart the legalistic thinking of the Pharisees. Remember how Jesus was just saying to them in verse 15, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. You may appear to the eyes of men to be so scrupulous at observing God's law, and everyone is impressed at what a good, religious, morally upright person you appear to be, but God sees through your self-righteous, self-justifying appearances, and he sees the true inward heart that despises his law. And he sees that you are, in fact, spiritually dead. And so, from verse 16, Jesus continues and elaborates on this train of thought by dissecting the bankruptcy of their legalism and their religious self-righteousness. And the mention of divorce serves as an example, a case study of their hypocrisy, which we'll see in a little bit. But more importantly, in, in so doing, as he's exposing the Pharisees' true spiritual lifelessness and emptiness... More importantly, Jesus, what he's doing is he's giving this remarkably concise and masterful exposition on the gospel. In these few short verses, he packs a punch in showing the power of the gospel as it pertains to the law. Notice how Jesus presents these two side by side in verse 16. He says, the law and the prophets, or just law for short, and then he talks about Since then, the good news, which is what the word gospel literally means. 
And so here Jesus is expounding on the relationship between law and gospel or law and grace in response to the empty religion of the Pharisees. And understanding this relationship is critical. You know, so many doctrinal issues that arise which contradict the gospel and almost every spiritual issue uh, of struggling to live the Christian life they can all be attributed to a failure to fully grasp the dynamics of law and grace. That's how important this is. Because a proper biblical understanding of their relationship reveals to us the full breadth of God's saving work in the heart of a sinner. And it helps us to understand more deeply the nature of the Christian life, what it means to be a Christian. And so as we begin with verse 16, we, we see first that the gospel is the good news of God's grace that frees us from the law. The grace of God that frees us from the law. Now I keep saying law, 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 law. What, what exactly do I mean by law? Well, it's the law of God. It's his commandments. God's will for all mankind, which is to follow and obey his commandments, with all our heart, soul, mind, strength, all of our lives. Now you might say, well, what right does God have to demand obedience from us? What right does he have to govern our lives? What right? Every right. Because he's our maker. He's the sovereign creator of the universe you do realize that we are living in his creation, in his universe. We are living the life that he created and gave to us. You have no existence apart from him. We are not the creator. We are the creature, his created beings in his image. And so God alone has the rightful prerogative to govern and rule over us through his law, his commandments, the written expression of his will for man. Unless you think that God is some tyrant in heaven, some harsh dictator who imposes arbitrary rules uh, upon his creation, let's ask the question, but what is God like? How does God reveal himself to be? Psalm 145 verse 9, the Lord is good to all. His mercy is over all that he has made. He is a good God. The very perfection of goodness himself. What this means is that God is not evil. His will and intention in creating mankind is not to do harm or ill to them, but to do good to them, to bless them. It pleases God to share and bestow his own goodness, his own good self, to display his infinite holy love and overflow with kindness and generosity upon his creation. This is God's nature and character as he reveals himself to be in his word. It is so good that God is good. And as such, because God is good, his law, is good. All his commandments are perfectly good, intended for our highest happiness and blessing. I mean, think about it. 
what a wonderful world it would be if every single human being lived in perfect obedience to God's commandments, in perfect obedience to the Bible, if everyone followed his law from the heart, murder, hate, violence wouldn't exist. You know, it seems like every other day some innocent child gets hit by a stray bullet from a freeway shooting on 580. It happened again this past week. I don't know if you saw, just horrible, wretched darkness. In a world of perfect obedience to God's law, we would have no fear of theft or robbery. You could go to sleep, leave your front door locked. You could leave it wide open if you want. It would be a world free from broken marriages. No fear of infidelity and its destructive ramifications. No broken families. No strained relationships. Do you see how good the law of God is? His commandments are not burdensome or authoritarian, but they are good as God is good. What a heavenly world it would be, devoid of the darkness of fear and sorrow because God is light and in him there is no darkness at all, 1 John 1, 5. But alas, that is not the world in which we live. We live in a fallen world marred by sin and darkness. But why is that the case? Why is the world so dark and broken? You know, you go ask this question to people walking down the street. Hey, what do you, what do you think is wrong with this world? Can you pinpoint that for me? What is the biggest problem that plagues society? Well, you get a host of different answers, ranging from politics, uh, the problem of poverty, uh, the limitation of natural resources, uh, technic- technological challenges that we have yet to overcome. Now, some may even mention that the problem of this world is that people are not good, that they're inclined to evil. That's why there's greed, hatred, pride, and so on and so forth. But rarely will you hear the one true answer, unless you're speaking to a born-again believer, what is wrong with this world? What is the answer? Me. Me, because I am a sinner. Sin is the great problem. And sin resides, it originates, and it operates in no other environment than our own sinful hearts. The law of God is good, but mankind has turned to evil and rebelled against God. Human nature has fallen in sin such that we are positively inclined to disobey God. As sinners, we are lawless people before God simply because we are all lawbreakers, guilty of breaking God's commandments. I mean, who here can say that he or she has never broken God's law? No one. If you're honest and sane. And as James chapter 2, verse 10 says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it, which actually makes perfect sense because you don't have to commit every possible crime per U.S. federal law to be considered a criminal. Committing one crime is sufficient and just to declare you a criminal. You see, this is the bad news of our sinful condition that we are all guilty lawbreakers before God who is holy, good, and just. 
And so he must punish sin. To leave sin unpunished would be evil and it would be heinous injustice. And it is because God is infinitely good that he is faithful to punish sin. By no means he will leave sin unpunished. He will condemn evil. But that's us. We are the evildoers. Sinners deserving of God's righteous judgment of eternal wrath. Now, if that's not bad news enough, as it is, we are not only rightfully condemned, but we are hopelessly condemned. Why? Because here and now, the law cannot save us. The law cannot save us because the law can only condemn us. You see, the law is like a mirror, as Paul implies in Romans 7. The law is like a mirror. It reflects God's holy character of perfect goodness, love, and righteousness. But as such, it is also a mirror that reflects and reveals our unholiness. But listen, the mirror cannot change you. The mirror cannot fix you. The mirror can only show you who you really are. To show you your true naked appearance before God's eyes. Unclean and shameful in the guilt of sin. The mirror cannot cleanse you. The mirror can only reflect and magnify every blemish of your sin-stained soul. Which means then that we are utterly unable to save ourselves by our good works of, or, or acts of obedience. It is impossible and futile to try to earn back God's acceptance by trying to be a better person, trying to be more law-abiding, trying to use the law to clean up your moral resume and pay for your sins because... Every time you come face to face with the law, it can only serve to remind you that you are condemned already because you are already a lawbreaker. You're not morally neutral. You are a guilty sinner before God. Everyone is rightfully condemned by the law. And this is really the infallible testimony of the entire Old Testament, isn't it? That man's heart is so corrupt in sin that even when he is given the greatest spiritual privilege of being part of Israel, God's chosen holy nation, with all of the access to the one true God, all of the revelation, all of the oracles of God, even with God's very own manifest presence residing among them. What happened? Israel as a nation forsook God. They rebelled against him. Time and time again, and a thousand years of Israel's history from Exodus to Malachi testifies to this, that man is hopelessly lost in sin. Man's greatest problem is not circumstantial. It's not environmental. It's not external to him. But it is internal and spiritual. He has fallen in sin and enslaved to the spirit of rebellion against God. The entire Old Testament is one long surgical exposition of the heart of sinful mankind. And that's why Jesus mentions this term in verse 16, the law and prophets. This was the Jewish way of referring to the Old Testament. 
It was a shorthand for the law, the prophets, and the writings. That's what the Jews call uh, the, the Old Testament today, the law, the prophets, and the writings. They use an acronym for it called Tanakh. But it's the Old Testament that tells us of how Israel entered into a covenant relationship with God. And the terms and conditions were this. If you obey, you will be my people and I will be your God. And they said, we will do it. We are able, we promise to uphold our end of the agreement, our end of the covenant stipulations. We will obey. But the law and the prophets testified they could not because they would not obey God. And so they incurred his judgment of exile from his presence. Because man's sinful heart is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot, Romans 8, 7. The Old Testament is proof of this. The law is is good, but it is powerless to save us. Why? Because we are powerless to submit to it. Because we're in bondage to the power of sin. The law is good and holy, but our sinful flesh weakens it. In that because of our sin, the law can only place the weight of condemnation on us and it can't lift it from us. The law can only burden sinners with righteous judgment and it can't relieve them of the judgment. It can't give them rest. Friend, are you here this morning thinking that somehow you will do the best you can in living a good moral life? with the wishful thinking that somehow you will end up being good enough for God one day and that he will accept you into his presence. That is a lie from the mouth of the devil who wants to drag you down to hell with him. You will never be righteous enough in God's holy sight because you are fallen in sin. You will never be righteous by your own deeds and morals, by your works of the law, because the law testifies that you are unrighteous. And to insist on saving yourself through the works of the law is really just resolving to refuse to look in the mirror, to close your eyes and pretend like it's not real, that in truth, you are hopelessly condemned by the law. Friend, God knows your heart. He knows that you are woefully unclean and unable to save yourself. But I have good news for you. In God's great love and compassion for sinners. God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. That it might be fulfilled for us. This is the good news, the gospel of God's grace through Jesus Christ. That through his son, God came down from heaven and took on humanity to take the place of sinful man. And on behalf of sinners, Jesus came to live the life of perfect human obedience to God. He is the only man who truly fulfilled the law. The only man to earn the rightful blessings of the law reserved only for the perfectly law-abiding. And although he was blameless and spotless from sin, He willingly went to the cross to die the death of a sinner, taking the place of sinners on the cross where he endured the fullness of God's infinite wrath upon his own shoulders and thus paying for the full punishment of sin, the penalty of the law on behalf of those 
He came to save. And He rose from the dead on the third day. And now He calls sinners to repent. Just confess your sin. Confess. Acknowledge your lawlessness. And simply put your trust in what He has done to save sinners. And that will be enough. That will be sufficient. If you repent and put your faith in Jesus Christ, He will give to you His works of the law. His merit. His righteousness. It will be freely given to you as an undeserved gift, credited to you as if you had done it, the life that you should have lived. And you will be forgiven of all sin because He paid for it all by His suffering and death on the cross. And you will be amazingly, miraculously declared perfectly righteous in God's sight forever on the basis of Jesus' works. This, my friends, is grace. Undeserved, unmerited, unbelievable mercy and kindness from God. And yet He calls us to believe it. That He has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. This is the gospel of God's grace, which frees us from the crushing burden of the law. And this grace was fully revealed and manifested when Jesus entered the world 2,000 years ago. That's why he mentions all of a sudden John the Baptist in verse 16. He says the, the law and the prophets, the Old Testament epoch, they were until John And since then, the good news of God's kingdom is being proclaimed. John the Baptist, he played a unique role in being the prophetic bridge between the Old Testament age and the New Testament age. Because he was not only the last prophet before Jesus' coming, who was the ultimate prophet, but that John was the immediate forerunner for Jesus, who announced to the world, Behold, the Lamb of God is finally here, the one who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist was like the red carpet to usher in the good news that Christ has come. He has arrived to establish his kingdom, to free us from our slavery to sin and our bondage to the law's condemnation and to bring us under his reign where he rules over us with mercy and grace, abounding in love for his people forever. You see, the law cannot save us. We cannot save ourselves with good works. And so the law was meant to drive us to Christ. The law was meant to expose our helplessness and dire spiritual condition and thus lead us to look to God for grace. Now let me clarify. This does not mean that everyone in the Old Testament was stuck without salvation or that everyone in the Old Testament were expected to somehow earn their salvation by works. No, salvation has always been by grace through faith. God always called His people to put their trust in His grace. God always revealed His grace to them from the beginning. But in the Old Testament, it was just in parts and pieces, in shadows. Abraham believed God. Abraham trusted God. And that is what was counted to him as righteousness. That was what declared him righteous in God's sight. He was justified by faith alone. 
Because he believed God, he trusted God, but in what? What about God? What, what did he trust in? In God's promise of grace. You know, Abraham was a pagan worshiper. Joshua 24 tells us. Abraham wasn't this man of faith from birth. He was an idolater, along with the rest of his family. He was a, he was a pagan. But God appeared to this pagan worshiper, and he said, Abram, that was his name at the time, I'm going to bless you. Uh, I'm going to bless you undeservingly. I want you to go and leave your pagan country and go to the land that I am giving to you, and I'm going to bless you like you never imagined. And Abram went, huh, really? You know I've been doing all this for all these years, are you sure? Abram, do you trust me? That I am and willing to impart undeserved, unmerited blessing because this is who I am. And Abram said, yes, Lord. And that was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham believed that promise of grace. Every Old Testament believer was saved by believing and trusting God's word that he is gracious, merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He is just and he must punish sin. They believe that, every true Old Testament believer. But they also believe that he will also forgive sin and iniquity. How's that going to work? I don't know, but I trust him. I trust him as he has revealed himself to be perfectly just and yet that he is able and willing to be merciful to a sinner like me. And so in the Old Testament, saving faith was by repenting and believing God's promise of forgiveness, trusting his word of grace, taking him at his word. And in the New Testament, as ushered in by John the Baptist, that word of grace became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, full of grace and truth. And on the cross, it finally made sense. It was fully revealed on the cross how perfect, holy justice that must punish sin and infinite divine mercy that would forgive sin could come together how God could forgive sin and punish sin at the same time justice and mercy came together in the person of Jesus who satisfied the full measure of divine judgment and wrath and yet he did so in love for sinners he came to save to atone for their sin this is the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ And his gracious kingdom that welcomes sinners. And all who have ears to hear, they, what does Jesus say? They force their way into it. Now what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that people get into God's kingdom by their own willpower, by brute force of good works. That would negate everything we just talked about. But it's that they rush into God's kingdom with force, with vigor. Sinners press their way in with enthusiasm no matter what the cost, because they see how good the gospel is, that it's worth everything. They hear Jesus say, well, you know, this is not some casual Sunday religion that we're talking about, but if you you want to enter my kingdom, what it means to follow me, you must die to yourself. I've come to save you from yourself. Lose your life and you'll find it. 
And those who have ears to hear, they respond, well, that's perfectly fine with me. My life apart from the gospel was an aimless, meaningless mess anyway. I happily give it all in exchange for the new life in Christ. And so they press on and they press in with all their vigor and force, not arduously, but so happily yielding themselves and bowing the knee to Christ. It's like shoppers on Black Friday morning who forcefully push their way into the doors of Walmart as soon as the door opens because they can't believe what a good deal they can get even though it's really not that good. And if unbelieving men can show such violent fervor at temporal things, how much more the one who believes the unbelievably good news, the most scandalous yet gracious deal that Christ got our sin and we get his righteousness. And this whole imagery What an indictment against the Pharisees who refused to enter when so many were coming joyfully, running, rushing into God's kingdom. But they insisted on staying put and remaining in their self-righteousness. They refused to taste and see the goodness of the Lord, the sweetness of His grace that welcomes sinners to come barging into the doors of His kingdom. They refuse to believe that God was as good as he says he is. That simply by trusting in his work of salvation, that guilty sinners like you and me can be totally released from the laws, burdens, and demands. And that we can live in peace and freedom with all our sins forgiven and our conscience sprinkled clean by Jesus' blood shed for us. Now, there's a very important clarification that we need to make. Because some people hear this gospel message and think, well, that's great. I just, I just believe and I'm forgiven. And I'm free from the law forever. Which means then, hip, hip, hooray. I don't have to live in obedience to God's commandments because no more law, free from the law. I can do whatever I want. Uh uh-uh. uh. To think and to live like this is to completely misunderstand the gospel, is to show that you never understood what salvation really is. And it only reveals that your heart is still spiritually dead. Because, listen, the gospel is the grace that not only frees us from the law, frees us from its burden and penalty. But it is also the grace that frees us to do the law. It is the grace that empowers true obedience from within. Notice how Jesus kind of interjects and interrupts himself in verse 17. After talking about the glorious gospel of his kingdom, the freeness of grace, and he says in verse 17, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. He's saying, lest you misunderstand what I'm saying, the law stands. Here Jesus is talking about the one dot of the law. It's the the smallest little stroke at the edge of a letter. You know, if you use Microsoft Word, which I imagine almost everyone does, or if you just use a computer, if you know what that is, and you use it, uh, you undoubtedly know this font, Times New Roman. 
As soon as I said it, you could see and visualize that font in your head because that's the default font uh, for so many documents. Now, if you were to compare Times New Roman, that font, what it looks like, the style, if you were to compare that to a font like Arial, what's the difference? Arial, the font, is straight. It's all straight lines. And you could almost draw it with sticks. But Times New Roman, by comparison, has these tiny little stylistic hooks or little extra strokes on the edges. Like if you imagine a capital A, you see those little, little, little lines at the bottom of the two legs and one at the top and so on and so, so forth for all the other letters of the alphabet. It's to make it a little bit more sophisticated or formal. But th those little hooks, those little extra strokes, in typography, that's called a serif. Which is why you may also recognize that font, Microsoft Sans Serif. Why am I talking about fonts on the pulpit? This is kind of weird. But Microsoft Sans Serif, it looks very similar to Arial, very straight. Microsoft Sans Serif. Sans Serif means without the serif. Without the extra strokes, it's very straight. Now, when Jesus says, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law, he's actually saying, for one serif. It's easier for the universe to collapse and fade than even a tiny serif on the edge of one of the letters of God's law to become void. In other words, speaking to the Pharisees, he was saying, well, you think all this talk about grace means that my people have no regard for the law anymore? No thought of obedience? What, do you think my kingdom is a kingdom of lawlessness? That would be no different than this fallen world, the kingdom of darkness. No, God's law stands forever. And it's my grace alone which saves sinners from, from the law's condemnation and therefore empowers true obedience to the law from the heart, motivated by joy and love, a sincere delight in obedience, unlike you Pharisees and your so-called obedience, which is all just a bunch of begrudging legalism. And God sees your heart that you actually despise God's law from the heart and thus you disobey it from the heart. And that's why Jesus brings up uh, this issue of divorce because it's a prime example, a case study of how spiritually dead the Pharisees were and their legalistic way of trying to obey the law. Because from the beginning, it was always God's will and decree for a man and a woman to be joined together in one flesh for a lifelong covenant union. That's what marriage is. That's what makes marriage marriage. Otherwise, it's just domestic partnership or whatever they call it these days. Marriage is a sacred bond of lifelong commitment and union. That's the sanctity of marriage. What God has joined together, let no man separate it. And to rend that union is to disobey God and to transgress His will. Now, divorce is not the unforgivable sin. There is forgiveness for all who repent of it and recognize that it is sin. Confess it to God. There is plenty of forgiveness and mercy, as with all sins. But as God's church, let's call it what it is. Divorce is sin. Unless your spouse forsook you, then you have, that's outside of your control. But as it is, divorce is sin. It is contrary to God's will. It dishonors His design of covenant faithfulness for life, no matter what, for richer or poor, in sickness and in health. 
on the best days as a couple and on the worst days as a couple. No, I am committed to you until the end, until death do us part. That is the sacred vow and bond of marriage. But throughout the course of human history, ever since the fall in Genesis chapter 3, marriages were falling apart because men and women were sinful. And despite being contrary to God's will, divorce was happening. People were doing it. They were divorcing each other as they wished. And so in the law that God gave to Israel, in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, God gave instructions on regulating divorce because it was happening. Now, we have to understand this very clearly, okay? The way that Deuteronomy 24 is written is not God saying, hey, you want to get a divorce? Here's how to make it happen. But rather, it was God saying, when divorce happens, because I know it's going to happen because of your hardness of heart, which is exactly how Jesus clarified to the Pharisees in other places in the gospel. When it happens, because I know that you are hard-hearted, this is how it must be regulated. By no means was this meant to be an endorsement of divorce, but simply a recognition of how fallen and broken men and women were. And if God did not intervene by at least regulating and controlling divorce, it would spiral out of control and cause irreparable destruction to society. I mean, look, we have laws in this country, that, in the state, that, that regulate proceedings in the event that a crime has been committed. In the case that someone, someone commits theft, let's say, then this is how it should be processed, so on and so forth. And it would be sorely mistaken to think that the existence of that law concerning that crime is an expression of approval of that crime. No, it's simply a, a, a recognition that we live in a world of crime and criminals. And laws must be designed to prepare to handle it. That's what Deuteronomy 24 was. God was regulating, even restraining divorce through it. That was the spirit of the law. But what did the Pharisees do? Well, first of all, their hearts were sinful. They were adulterers in heart. And because they knew that they couldn't keep it in the full spirit of it, they took Deuteronomy 24 as a full-fledged encouragement to do as they please and divorce whenever they felt like it, so much so that in one school of the Pharisees, according to Jewish ancient sources, permitted a man to divorce his wife if she brought him dinner that was a little too cold. Why? Because presumably, this would be their little escape. And they'd happily remarry that pretty young lady that they've been eyeing on in the, in the marketplace. And rinse and repeat. That is an abomination. But God knows their hearts. They were adulterers in heart. And so Jesus made it clear, verse 18, Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. It was Jesus' concise way of, of poking and piercing them in their conscience. That's the heart issue. But this is the problem of legalism, you see. You insist on pursuing self-righteousness by meticulously observing the law. But you actually despise the law. And your flesh is too weak to keep it by your own strength. And so what do you do? 
you lower the standard of the law. And you strip out the spirit of the text so that you can play your little pretense of observing only the empty shell of the law and you end up defiling the law that reflects God's glory. Which in the case of God's command against divorce is what? Let's ask the question, why does God hate divorce so much? It's because marriage is designed. It is designed to to reflect the union of Christ and His church. Earthly marriage is but a shadow of heavenly marriage of God and His people. Their endless union, the love that God has for His beloved, which nothing can separate. And this is not just in the New Testament. All over the Old Testament. Think of how much God speaks of His relationship with Israel in marital terms as husband and wife. Read Hosea, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. It's all there. And so to break the bond of the sacred earthly picture is to reflect a misrepresentation of the author of marriage and to imply that he would ever leave or forsake his people based on, conditioned on, how we are that day. Whether or not we've been good enough for him whether or not we're pleasing enough to Him. It is to defile the glory and sufficiency of the gospel, which is that Christ will never abandon His bride, the church. He loves her to the end, no matter how wayward she may be. He will pursue her. He will be faithful to her. He will protect her. He will provide for her. He will restore her. And never for a moment will He refuse to call her His beloved. Church, do you see the heartbeat of the gospel in this command? Do you see the revelation of his love for his people in how much he hates divorce? To all the married couples, you want the secret to a healthy, happy, thriving, lifelong marriage? Here it is. Step number one. And there's really only one step. Take your eyes off yourself. You won't find strength in yourself. I'm sorry, but you're not as good of a husband or wife as you think you are. But the more you understand and believe your marriage to be a holy picture of the gospel, and the more you are captivated in your own heart by Jesus' relentless covenant faithfulness to you on your best days as a Christian, And all the same on your worst days as a Christian. The more you will be moved by the virtue and excellency of unconditional love and faithfulness. And the more you will find yourself wanting to emulate it. Because you see it as so lovely and worthy of your utmost imitation. It will be increasingly a delight to love your spouse no matter what. And and, and loving your spouse on difficult days will especially feel glorious as you partake in the glory of Christ who loves you unreservedly even when you feel like you've done everything to warrant Him leaving you. Those are the moments when He says to you more loudly than ever, 
I will never leave you nor forsake you. You see, this is how the gospel of God's grace empowers our obedience, as with all other commandments, by revealing to us the true goodness of his law. It takes us, the gospel takes us to God's heart. And only the gospel can do this because the gospel is the heart of God's glorious grace revealed fully in the person of Jesus. It is the grace of God that opens our eyes to the loveliness of the law and makes us want to obey because we see it as so good and beautiful. And His grace alone can, can impart a true inward delight in His law. That is the power of God's Spirit at work within us. It is the new covenant in which He takes the law of God that was once written on tablets of stone and now He writes it onto the tablets of our hearts. This friends, is true freedom. Being freed from spiritual blindness that keeps us from seeing the beauty of God's glory in His law. And being freed from the flesh's weakness of being unable to want to obey. Being unable to love God and submit to Him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Christian, in your walk with the Lord, you must never forget that you are entirely dependent on God's grace every hour and moment of the day. If obedience to God ever feels arduous, that's only a symptom that you are trying to abide by the law, by your own strength of your flesh, apart from grace. And understand that the gospel is the power of God, not only to save sinners, but the power of God to sustain His saints. The gospel must be your meditation day and night because only the gospel will communicate to you the true spirit of the law by reaffirming the goodness of God, the glories of His love, and the true blessings of His commandments. God never, ever, 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 ever commands anything arbitrarily. But every word that comes from His mouth Every jot and tittle, every little seraph is the carefully crafted words of your loving Father whose every intent is to bless you and to lead you and to guide you and give you the highest joy as He reveals more of His glorious love and His good and perfect will. Church, I pray that we would be a truly holy church, obedient faithful, in total submission to the authority of God's word, set apart from this world, a church that honors God and will follow him even unto death. And the way to be that, and the way to grow in authentic holiness, is by being a gospel-centered church. To be a congregation daily amazed by his grace, and constantly reveling in His love for us as revealed in Christ. And only then will we be empowered by His Spirit to love the One who so loved us and gave Himself for us. And we will then be able to say, Oh, how I love Your law. I delight to do Your will, O God. May the Lord help us and give us the grace to do so. Let's pray together.
our Father in heaven, we thank you for who you are, who you eternally are, your perfection, your nature, your glory, that you are good and merciful, that you are within yourself holy, infinite love. And Lord, we know, as you have told us, that the root of our fallenness is that we have believed the lie of sin and that we have seen and believed a mischaracterization of you and that we no longer believed the goodness of your commandments and the safety and blessing there is in your presence of abiding in your loving instruction. But we thank you so much for sending your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is through him. It is through his face, his work, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, all for us. It is through all of that and in him that we see and understand and we are restored to behold your true glory once again. O Lord, empower us to follow you all the days of our lives. Give us the grace to do so. And we thank you for the gift of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper by which you remind us so visually and tangibly through these ordinary elements of the bread and the cup that you are the one who feeds us and gives to us and that these means of grace are to remind us of the finished work and the sufficiency of the gospel. O oh Lord, help us now by your spirit to receive it by faith and strengthen our faith by it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.